Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Thanks, Lars. That's like the, the best intro I've ever had in my life. <laughs> Can we get that on the podcast too? Will that be all right? That would be fantastic. Uh, good morning, Black Fries. How are you today? Marvellous, marvellous. Well, uh, we're actually kicking off a brand new sermon series today, which will take us through the first part of the summer. And we're going to be spending our time looking at, by far and away, the greatest and most influential sermon ever preached in all of human history. No, not one of mine, in case any of you are wondering. Uh, We're, of course, going to be looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through to 7. Now, even if you think, I don't know what this sermon's all about, you probably know way more than you realize. Because many of the most famous phrases in all of history are found in these three chapters. Phrases like, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, don't cast your pearls before swine, the golden rule, do to others as you'd have them do to you. Don't worry about tomorrow, tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Salt of the earth, light of the world, the Lord's prayer, love your enemies, treasure in heaven, all this and more are found in this sermon. And so whatever we think about the Christian faith, As a matter of historical record, this sermon has been quoted more times, been analysed more deeply, and has shaped our world more than any other sermon before or since. Uh, Harvard professor Harvey Cox says this, and he's basically saying the same thing. This sermon is the most luminous, most quoted, most analysed, most contested, most influential moral and religious discourse in all of human history. So I think it merits a few weeks of our attention. So let's start by reading at the very beginning together. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And if you don't, the words will also be on the screen behind me, and we're going to read the first 12 verses together. This is what it says. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, what exactly is Jesus saying here? And how are these words so revolutionary? Well, at the end of Matthew chapter 4, we get a little clue, little insight into what Jesus is talking about. Matthew 4.23 is coming up on the screen. Jesus is going around Galilee. He's preaching in the synagogues, and here's his message. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. In fact, Jesus talked about the kingdom more than anything and everything else. So to understand not just these verses, but actually the whole of his ministry, the whole of this sermon, we have to kind of get our heads around this concept of kingdom. So let me try and explain it this way. And if you've been around in Christchurch a little longer, you'll be more familiar with some of this terminology. Every single person on earth has their own kingdom, a kind of area where they rule and reign, the range of like their effective will. And because I want my kingdom to be as large and prosperous and successful as possible, often I'm embarrassed to say at the expense of those around me, it's like my kingdom has been polluted by a me-first 
worldview. My kingdom's kind of been polluted by self. A really silly example of how this works itself out in everyday life. Uh, last summer, I was driving to our church retreat that you had mentioned a short while ago. It's absolutely fantastic. If you've not booked in, do uh, book in by the end of July. It is well worth it. So I'm driving with Joy, my wife, and our three children in the back. Uh, and we get just outside the M25, and we're driving down this winding country lane, and I get stuck behind a driver who's going 30 miles an hour in a 50-mile-an-hour zone. Who goes 30 in a 50? I'm like, Ugh! so frustrated. Why? This person's getting in the way of my kingdom. I've got places to get to. I've got things to do. And this person's holding me up. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not proud of this, but let me confess my sins to you. Uh, I referred to this driver as a muppet and a, a moron uh, and a buffoon uh, because I use insults from the 1920s. Um, and um, at, at one point, my little girl Mia uh, who was five at the time, she's so innocent, she's so pure. She was like, Daddy, Daddy, why isn't the moron moving out the way? I'm like, I'm <laughs> such a bad example. And, um, eventually, this, this single lane went into like a dual carriageway, and I got the chance to overtake this person. And I'm sure I'm the only driver in human history that's ever done this. But I thought, as I overtake this person, I'm just going to give them a look. Like, you know, nothing more, just a look to somehow try and communicate how much they've got in my way, got on my nerves, and held me up. Uh, unfortunately, to my horror and embarrassment, as I overtook the aforementioned Muppet, moron, and buffoon, I discovered that it was actually Lars. <laughs> uh, no, I lied. I lied. It wasn't actually Lars. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Uh, it's really sad when you laugh at your own jokes. Um, uh, it was actually a defenseless old man with really thick glasses. Now, we'll come back to this later, but here's, here's the point of the illustration. The story started with me feeling like, this person's getting in the way of my kingdom. By the end of the story, my kingdom's imposing on theirs through my really patronizing and unnecessarily aggressive driving. You see, we all have a polluted kingdom, and these kingdoms kind of clash. They kind of rub up against each other. Uh, more than that, here's, here's kind of how the Bible understands it. All these polluted little kingdoms, yours and mine, and the poor old man with thick glasses, they all kind of merge and intersect to form larger polluted kingdoms. Uh, things like political, cultural, economic systems, uh, villages, towns, cities, societies, communities, uh, empires, all of which have been polluted by self. And we can kind of understand it as the entire merging, the whole conglomeration of all these polluted kingdoms together, to use biblical language, is like the kingdom of this earth. It's basically a value system of pride and personal advancement and greed and lust for power and self, often to the detriment of those around us. Another example of how the kingdom of earth is seen to work. Uh, deep in the jungles and tropical rainforests of the Congo and Gabon, there exists a species of monkey whose most distinctive feature is a bright blue bottom. A picture of monkey coming up on the screen behind me. Some of you are wondering where's he going with this. Well, uh, biologists have discovered that where a monkey sits in the social order of this monkey society is determined by the brightness of its blue bottom. So they tried a little experiment. They took a monkey, a lowly monkey from the bottom of the pile, they painted its bottom a bright royal Windsor blue and released it back into the monkey community to see what would happen. Suddenly, this lowly monkey was like king of the pack. 
Like he was top of the pile. He could get all the food, all the toys he wanted, all the female monkeys wanted to date him. Like he'd a man, he'd a monkey, I suppose. Like, you know, big chief monkey. But over the coming days and weeks, the blue paint began to fade. And as it did, sure enough, this monkey began the slow and steady descent through the ranks of the social order till he found his place right at the bottom again. That is kind of how the kingdom of earth works. Only we replace a bright blue bottom with material success. Power, popularity, fame, greed, wealth, self, all to the detriment of those around us. And if we think about it, all the brokenness in our world, all the problems in our society are a direct result of these polluted kingdoms, individual or corporate, vying for supremacy. Who's the best? Expensive scandals. The reason that greed makes us so angry is we feel that those at the top of the pile are trying to advance their kingdom to the detriment of those lower down, maybe even ourselves. Antisocial behavior, slavery, terror attacks. We feel this sense of fear and potential violation that one kingdom will try and impose its ideals over another, over ours, by violence or force. This is part of the problem with the kind of toxic referendum debate right now. Like polluted kingdoms vying for supremacy and it often brings out the worst in us. Like this is the problem with the kingdom of the earth. This is the brokenness in our world. But here's a couple of challenges for us with this whole idea of kingdom. Number one, it's really hard to see a kingdom. Imagine if I had blindfolded you from a different part of the world and brought you to this room, taken off the blindfold and said, where are you? How would you know this is the united kingdom unless somebody told you? This is kind of what Jesus is doing here. I've come to show you a different way of being, a different way of living. I've come to introduce a different kind of kingdom. But here's the second challenge. This is very real for us in our wealthy Western bubble. It is really hard to see how polluted and broken and damaging the kingdom of this earth is, and therefore our desperate need for a new kingdom when we're doing rather well in the old kingdom. When metaphorically speaking, our bottoms are really blue, and yes, I do need a better metaphor than that. This is a challenge for us in the West because all around us there's advertisement saying, look, here's the top of the ladder, and it's kind of within reach. And it's so really hard to see how broken our world is and how desperately we need a new kingdom. It is a whole lot easier to see how broken our world is and how much we need a new kingdom when we're at the bottom of the pile. When the paint has faded. Like, yeah, I realize it now and then. Yeah, now and then I get, I get this inner ache when I feel like, oh, I'm not as wealthy and popular and successful as I would like to be, or maybe as that person over there. But often I can just so easily miss it. But when I live with that inner ache the whole time, I live with this longing for a different way of living, a different kind of kingdom. Well, those kinds of people are crowding around Jesus as he delivers this talk. I'm sure you all know this, but at at this point in history, little old Israel is living at the mercy of another kingdom, the kingdom of Rome, which in the Bible actually represents, it symbolizes way more than Rome itself. It's like an embodiment of this kingdom of self. And it's left little old Israel with no pride, no dignity, nothing at all. I mean, some historians think that the the poor Jews were taxed over 90% of their income to fund this ever-growing empire. I mean, they were left with absolutely nothing. All self-respect has gone. And it's into this context that Jesus comes with the words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This was the news they longed for. Oh, different kind of kingdom. I want to be free from what I'm 
living in right now, different kind of kingdom. Now, just to be clear, what Jesus is not quite saying here is I'm introducing a new kingdom, and if you want to be in it, you need to be poor in spirit. It's not quite what Jesus is saying. Back in the ancient world, there were two different types of blessing saying. The first kind of blessing saying was actually much more common. It was kind of instructive in nature. Like, if you want this kingdom, this is how you need to live. If you want the blessing, this is how you need to live. A modern-day example would be the early bird catches the worm. Like, if you want the kingdom, if you want the worm, if you want the blessing, be the early bird. The second mouse catches the cheese. Like, if you want the kingdom, you want the cheese, be the second mouse. Learn from others' mistakes. An instructive blessing saying. The second kind of blessing saying was much rarer but you actually see it more in the two centuries before Jesus and it came as something as a surprise saying like good news particularly to people who are down on their luck metaphorically speaking on their knees alone broken sick afraid a kind of message that says God hang on in there it's not the end yet perhaps this metaphor might work imagine you are playing football in a local pub league and you are 10 nil down at half time and you're like the game's over I can't go on. And the manager gathers you all in and says, good news, good news, good news. I've just signed Cristiano, Ronaldo and Lionel Messi and they're going to play for us in the second half. (laughs) Suddenly you're like, oh, that's a game changer. Like, we're down, but we're not out. I'm going to play in a different kind of kingdom from now on. This is kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying I'm introducing a new kingdom and if you want it, You need to be poor in spirit. He's saying, for those of you who are poor in spirit, I'm bringing the very best news, the news you've been longing for. In fact, the word literally means spiritual beggar. You've been, oh, there's there's got to be a different way of doing life. Money and power and pleasure. No, I don't want to live for that. Like, There's got to be something else. Jesus says, good news, new kind of kingdom. This is a kingdom for those of you who are mourning. Maybe you've lost a loved one at the hands of Rome. Maybe you are mourning the state of your nation. And of course, when you mourn, you live with this utter powerlessness. I can't fix Rome. I can't reverse death. Like, nothing's going to really heal this. Jesus says, in my kingdom, you're going to find the comfort your soul desires. This is a kingdom for the meek. The word literally means powerless and landless. Well, in a nation that felt like their land had been taken by Rome, this is hugely emotive. Only Jesus says, in this new kingdom... You won't just get your land back. The whole earth is going to be impacted by this. This is a kingdom for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not you need to do this to get the kingdom. Why? Because I hunger and thirst for what I do not have. I'm hungry when there is no food in my tummy. And so Jesus is saying, for those of you who feel like you have no righteousness of your own, for those of you who feel like you're a total failure, like you mess up all the time, the kind of acceptance, the connection, the filling that you long for, it's here for you in my new kingdom. In other words, in a world that goes after the smart and the shiny and the successful, it seems like Jesus is attracted to totally the opposite kind of people to everybody else, to the poor and to the hurting, to orphans and widows, to the sick, to the lost and to the lonely. I love the story, the story that Brené Brown tells, a brilliant author and speaker. And she tells the story of going into a fast food outlet and ordering some food for her family. 
And she just gets chatting to the server behind the counter. And out of nowhere, this lady just bursts into tears. And she says this, I'm really sorry. Normally, nobody ever notices people like us. Jesus is the one that notices. I don't know what you are going through right now. Jesus sees. Jesus notices and he really, really cares. And implicit in what Jesus is saying is this. If the kingdom of earth is all about climbing ladders, if he's saying, hey, this is a kingdom for those at the bottom of the ladder, implicitly he's saying, this is where you're going to find it. You want this peace and joy and life that's truly life. You're going to find it by getting off the ladder, by laying down your kingdom. One of the most influential Christians to, to ever figure out the power of this was a guy called Ignatius. Uh, he lived around about 500 years ago, was the son of a wealthy guy, wealthy guy himself, really well-known, really successful, was a, a very well-known soldier, uh, had a reputation for being a bit of a womanizer as well. And during one particular battle, uh, his legs were very badly injured by a cannonball, and they were set badly, and he was left with really crooked legs. And in an era where he thought, you know, I have to appear at the royal courts often. He thought, crooked legs are not a very good look. In fact, he lived with this paralyzing fear. How can I attract a fabulously beautiful woman if I've got really crooked legs? And so in an age that had no pain relief, no anesthetics at all, Ignatius had his legs deliberately broken, not once, but twice, Also, he could have fabulous legs. But while he was healing, an interesting thing happened. He began thinking about life and what it's all about. He, he described himself as a great and vain desirer of winning glory, of climbing the ladder, a man given over to the vanities of this world. But as he thought about it, he thought, as I get like a great military conquest or a great romantic success, I get a kick of pleasure, but then the pleasure fades and I, I need even more. And I feel kind of hollow and empty. But when he thought about laying down his kingdom, about those whose lives were marked by kindness or compassion or generosity, he realized that the joy didn't fade. Somehow the delight lasted. And this guy, high up the ladder of success, he basically laid it all down. And he founded what is today known as Ignatian spirituality. And a key tenet is basically this. You want to find real life, real joy, real happiness. Lay your life down. You find your life by losing it. Another guy who worked out the power of this was the great Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis. I love this insight of his. He said, maybe, maybe one of the reasons we get so stressed and angry in life is we see time as belonging to ourselves. Like, time is mine, my kingdom. This is why I get angry when I'm stuck behind a driver going 30 in a 50. Why? Because it's my time. And somehow this person is robbing time and productivity from me. But what if, Lewis said, what if I laid down my kingdom and stepped into somebody else's kingdom where there is a new king? then this time right now is not my own. It is a gift from somebody else. And therefore, if I'm stuck in traffic, like, this moment's a gift. I can use it to admire views of the rolling British countryside, to reflect on my life, where I'm at, where I'm headed, to talk with the people in the car, my family that I love. And so every waking moment, however seemingly frustrating for anybody else, it can be an opportunity for peace and joy and thankfulness. The power of laying down our kingdom. I, I discovered the power of this afresh ju just a few days ago. Uh, I was on the tube and I got to uh, Embankment Station and the tube doors opened and this giant gang of youths stepped into the tube. 
this huge gang of hoodlums. And uh, they were playing this horrific music, utterly ghastly music. Comedian Kevin Bridges talks about this. It, like, it, it all sounds the same to me, you know, like in the club, in the club, in the club. Like everything these people do, it's in the club, you know? It's, it's the kind of music that, that after you've listened to it, you're like, I know less stuff than I did before listening to that song. I'm, I'm less intelligent, like in the club, in the club. I, I, I'm so angry. I'm like, my kingdom's been violated. Like, oh, the youths of today, they have no respect. I'm like, I'm sounding like a 500 year old man. What am I going to do? And then I remembered this sermon. And I just thought to myself, what if in this moment I lay down my kingdom? What if I lay down my right to a nice, quiet tube carriage? Well, suddenly, as I took my eyes off myself, I suddenly started noticing the joy on their faces. I was like, if anyone here looks like they're in the wrong kingdom, it's grumpy old me. I began noticing the depth of their friendship. I'm like, do I have friends like that? I began thinking of a party that I was going to shortly, and it was just a really fresh revelation for me, the speed at which I can go from anger and resentment to peace and joy, all through the power of laying down my own kingdom. Jesus is basically here introducing a totally different value system that stands in stark contrast to the kingdom of this earth. The kingdom of this, this earth says, if you want to be happy, climb the ladder of success. Jesus says the opposite is true. You want to find true joy, true life, get off the ladder completely, lay your kingdom down, and therefore, for those of you at the bottom of the ladder, it's going to be easiest of all for you to enter because you have less to lay down. It's going to be harder for the rich. Harder for the entitled. But this all leaves me with a curious question. If I choose to step into this new kingdom of peace and joy and life, if I lay my own kingdom down, how do I relate to the old kingdom? How do the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven, how do they relate to each other? Uh, I guess we can all bring to mind movies that depict an epic clash of kingdoms. You know, the force versus the dark side, Mordor versus Middle Earth, Lord of the Rings reference, Christchurch sermon bingo, to get off, there we go. Like, is this how we relate to the kingdom of earth in Jesus' kingdom? You know, you look at the church today, some people look like they want to do that. Like, oh, let's just criticize. Let's just throw stones or let's you know, run away to a little commune. Like, is this how we're to live? Because Jesus does seem to acknowledge like he's a realist, that life in his kingdom won't all be plain sailing. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. That don't sound so much fun. He says, yours is the kingdom, but you will be filled. Yours is the kingdom, but you will inherit the earth. In other words, yeah, you're going to find peace and joy now, but not quite to the measure that you long for. So, so how do I live in this kingdom? Because at a casual glance, you know, as I continue to bump up against the kingdom of this earth, I, I might lay down my kingdom, but other people's selfish kingdoms are still out there. It seems like how I live is I let the kingdom of earth walk all over me. Like, yeah, you're blessed when you're persecuted, so go seek persecution. Is that what Jesus is saying? In fact, just a few verses later, he goes on to say probably, probably the most well-known lines in this sermon. Someone hits you on one cheek, turn the other one. Someone asks you to go one mile, go a second mile. Someone sues you for your shirt, give them your cloak too. Like, is this how we live in the kingdom of heaven? Basically like a human doormat in the face of everybody else's self-polluted kingdoms? Well, not, not quite. Not quite. You see, Jesus does acknowledge pain in his kingdom. In fact, the Beatitudes, the blessing sayings, 
build up to number nine, which says this, blessed are you when you are persecuted, insulted, and all kinds of evil is done against you because of me. Like There's pain in his kingdom. And yet somehow Jesus says in the midst of his pain, there is rejoicing and reward and the kingdom of heaven is going to get established. Like mind blown, what exactly is he doing? Well, what Jesus is basically doing is he's beginning to introduce a strategy, a kind of military strategy, a kind of kingdom strategy that nobody else in all of history has ever come up with before. He's saying we aren't going to fight back. We aren't going to run away and form our own commune. He is laying down the principle of sacrificial love. Like if the kingdom of earth is epitomized by self, like what's the opposite? Just lay your life down. Sacrificial love. And Jesus basically says, as you live this out, yeah, it will be painful, but this is how the kingdom of heaven wins. You see, there is another way of discovering what kingdom you are in. To go back to that metaphor from earlier, if I blindfolded you from a different nation and I brought you to this room, taken off the blindfold and said, which kingdom are you in? But nobody's going to tell you. How do you find out? You find out by observing the customs and behaviors of the people in the kingdom in which you are in. If I brought you to the United Kingdom and you had a look around and thought, hmm, everyone here is fighting over a referendum. Hmm. Everyone here grumbles about the weather. Like, oh, it's too hot in the summer. It's too cold in the winter. It's too hay fevery in the spring. It's too rainy in the autumn. Ah, these must be British people. I've, I've heard about these people. When you watch how others live, you're like, ah, oh, I, I see a kingdom there. Jesus is saying, as you live this out, yeah, yeah, it'll hurt, but others will see how polluted and corrupt the kingdom of earth is and how beautiful and pure the kingdom of heaven is. And then he gives some examples of what this might look like. He says, if somebody asks you to go one mile, go a second mile. I thought Liz Oldfield, by the way, spoke magnificently on this a couple of weeks ago. Do listen to that talk. Let me tease out what she was saying a little further. I'm sure most of you know this, but at this point in history, a Roman soldier could commandeer any Jewish citizen and order them to carry their heavy bag of belongings a whole mile. More than that was seen as exploitation, but you could do it for a mile. So imagine I've commandeered somebody as a Roman soldier and I may be pushing them around, spitting on them, belittling them, their family, their nation, and then we get to the mile mark. This person is entitled now legally justified in dropping the bag and walking off with resentment in their heart. What if Jesus says, you're like, no, this is heavy. I'm, here to, I'm, I'm going to carry this even further. Suddenly in that moment, the soldier's put in a very uncomfortable situation. Oh, hang on, no, this is seen as exploitation in the eyes of, eyes of the world. Like, what if your friends and family see this? Like, I can't afford to have a revolt on my shoulders. What if my superiors see this? I could get into trouble with them. And suddenly, through sacrificial love, the contrast between these two kingdoms is turned up. And everyone can see how the principle of ordering people to carry anything in the first place is actually wrong, and the world needs to change. It's exactly the same principle with if someone sues you for your shirt, give, give them your cloak too. At this point in history, a cloak was seen as an inalienable right. No one could take that from you. But what if somebody unjustly comes up to you and says, I'm, I'm not going to have that, that, that shirt of yours? What if you say, oh, it's cold here at night, have, have my cloak too? Then before a watching world, imagine the scene, you've got wealthy Roman soldier, cloak over one arm, shirt over the other, standing next to somebody who's half naked. Like the world can see, no. Like as you live a life of sacrificial love, like this isn't right, something needs to change. It's the same with turning the other cheek. Jesus doesn't talk about any cheek, he talks about the right cheek. Why is that significant? Well, back in the day, you, you wouldn't use your left hand. That was unclean. You did bathroom things with the left hand. 
So if I slap somebody on the right cheek, I'm giving them what's called a backhander. This is an insult. Now, this was legal for superiors to do to inferiors. Like Roman soldiers could do this. Way of saying, I am more important than you. I'm better than you. It's the kingdom of ladders all over again. But if somebody turns the other cheek, well, I, I can't use my left hand to give them a backhander. That's unclean. Everybody would know that. But if I hit them again, I'm fighting as equals were thought to fight. And so even if I somehow punch them to the floor and they're knocked out unconscious, somehow the dignity of this person has been raised. Somehow they've won the moral victory. And the watching world sees, ah, oh, there's power in the kingdom with no ladders. This is how the world gets changed. Through the power of sacrificial love. I found it very moving watching my own children begin to learn the power of this. Over the last six months, one of my children in particular, excuse me, has been through a prolonged period of very nasty bullying. I was bullied at school. Let me tell you, when your kids are bullied, it's like a billion times worse. And just to give you a feel, like just one of the things this child in particular said just a couple of months ago was, Daddy, I want to break all the mirrors in our house so I don't need to look at myself. I'm like, who's doing this to you? Like brings out the protective daddy bear in me. I'm like in the playground in the morning, like, where are they? I'm going to trip them up. I'm going to push them over. Like, that's how the kingdom of earth works. Like, I'll use my superior power to crush them. And like, then, then I got to preparing this sermon. I'm like, wow, sacrificial love. What do we do? So, you know, we've, we've done all the appropriate things, like, like talk to the teachers and stuff like that. But I sat down with this child in particular and said, look, th this is what Jesus says. Let's brainstorm some ideas. How can we respond with love? And we came up with ideas like we can invite them around for a play date. We could buy them some sweets. And, and this, this child in particular was just deeply skeptical about this. It's like, Dad, can't you just hit them? I'm like, no, no, that's illegal. I'm a pastor. We'll pay someone else. No, no, no. Um, um, and so like, this just the week before last. The week before last, they've tried everything else. They go into school with the strategy of sacrificial love. First thing they say to me when they come out is, Dad, I don't think they're going to bully me anymore. I'm like, oh my goodness, it actually works. This isn't just a sermon. This is how the world gets changed. Martin Luther King says this, quotes on the screen, love is the only force capable of turning an enemy into a friend. Jesus is saying, you live this out, guys, it's going to hurt. But the world is going to change so you can rejoice. There's your reward. Actually, Martin Luther King and the whole civil rights movement, it's, it's a great place to see this kind of inaction. If you look at some of the images from the 1960s, it's just a couple coming up on the screen. You, you see a contrast between these two kingdoms, people peacefully marching for a kingdom with no ladders, kind of legally hosed by firemen or attacked by dogs. Like, to a watching world, you're like, this is wrong. The world needs to change. Uh, one of the, the leaders of the civil rights movement was a guy called Andrew Young. And he, he writes very movingly about this. And he talks about one particular march that was scheduled for after church on Easter Sunday morning. I love that as an aside. The roots of this movement were so inherently Christian they scheduled their protest for after church. Like, there'd be a lesson to all of us. Come to church, then we'll change the world, okay? <laughs> so 5,000 people marching across the bridge. And the other side of this bridge, there's firemen with their hoses. 
police with their dogs. There's a guy called Bull Connor who is just particularly brutal, even to kids, and he's hurling angry abuse. What are these people going to do? Are they going to fight back? They've got the numbers. Are they going to run away? They've got women and children amongst them. No, Andrew Young writes this, 5,000 people get on their knees to pray. Then you've got the most powerful contrast between these two kingdoms, like angry men hurling abuse and just 5,000 praying people. Like to a watching world, you're like, the world's got to change. And then Andrew Young writes this. There was just this moment where like one of the older reverends, a guy called Charles Billups, he just senses the presence of God and he stands to his feet and he says, onward, the Lord is with this movement. 5,000 people stand to their feet and they continue to march. Andrew Young says the strangest thing happened. He says, Bull Connor's there shouting abuse, but suddenly none of the police move a muscle. He said even the angry dogs were snarling and straining at their leashes. Suddenly they just grew calm and perfectly still. He said, I saw one fireman, tears in his eyes, just drop a hose at his feet like even the Roman soldiers are beginning to realize something's got to change we need a new kind of kingdom one woman started to sing the Lord parted the seas he's going to do it one more time and they walked through this is how the world gets changed the power of sacrificial love Jesus as we will see over the coming weeks he's introducing a totally different kingdom everyone on earth says you want a great life climb go higher. Jesus says, no, lay down your life. That's where joy is found. And therefore, for those of you at the bottom, for the hurting and the lonely, it's going to be easier for you to enter. But when you do this, as you live this out, I want to let you know that it's going to hurt. But rejoice, because the world's going to get changed. I want to finish a little differently. You know, often we would finish with, you know, application for what a particular passage could look like on Monday morning. I'm just struck by in these first 12 verses, there's just not a lot of practical application. Jesus gives us some room to work out what does this look like in my own life? So I just want to leave two minutes of quiet reflection for you to begin to ask yourself a couple of questions. The questions will come up on the screen. Question one is this, what what kingdom are you really part of? Oh, I, I know this is church, and so therefore the correct answer is God and Jesus. But if others looked at your life, what would they say? You busy trying to climb a ladder? Is your life marked by unhealthy comparison with others? What, what kingdom are you in? Question two is this. If we find this kingdom by laying down our lives, what's the next step for us in doing that? With our energy. How can I serve my neighborhood, my work? my family, my friends, my church? What about my money? If I find my, his kingdom by losing mine, what does this say about how I spend my money, how I give? My time. What if, what if this moment right now, what if this moment right now is not Andy taking up your time with a talk, what if this moment is a gift from God? Because it's his kingdom. How will we use it? And then question three is this, where is God calling us to radically love our world? Who's the hardest person to love? Where can we turn up the contrast the most? In our noisy city, is just a gift of two quiet minutes 
Maybe the band could come up quietly as everybody else reflects. Just like to pray for us very briefly before we sing. Why don't you bow your heads while I lead us? Father, I just want to thank you so very much for sending Jesus. Thank you that he modeled this better than anyone who's ever lived. That he had all authority all power and all glory, and he willingly laid it down. He willingly went to the cross. Thank you, not just for his model, but thank you that he didn't end at the cross, that the other side of sacrifice was resurrection, that after Friday came Sunday, that in laying down life, there is the promise of new life the other side. Lord, we honour you. Teach us afresh the power of that, I pray. Show us the joy and peace and life that's truly life to be found in laying down our own kingdoms. And speak to us about how we can radically love our world, not just individually, but as a church. May the way we live, the way we serve, turn up the contrast. May people across this city look at us and say, I see a better kind of kingdom. I want to find out more about how to live in that. We love you, Jesus, so much. I want to ask that these words now that we sing would be an expression of our gratitude, our adoration and our worship. I want to ask that as we honour you, would you draw close to us afresh? Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us a tangible taste of the life and joy and peace your kingdom offers. Come by your spirit. Come by your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together.